When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, good evening and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, December 15th. I'm here with Darius Dale, CEO and founder of 42 Macro. Hi Darius, how are you doing? Fonzo, what's up man? They got you up late over there. <laughs> it's 10 p.m. over here in the Netherlands, but hey, I mean, the Fed uh, meeting is just over. We, are, we have a lot of energy and things to discuss here, so Let's, uh, let's get this started. I'm Alf uh, Alfonso. Uh, I write Macro Compass and I contribute to Real Vision regularly. So Darius, let's uh, get this started. The Fed meeting is just over. Uh, the bond market is moving left and right. The curve flattened first, then steepened at the end of the, of the conference. Uh, yeah. The stock market uh, you know, dipped a little bit and now we are, we are hitting highs. The Nasdaq is leading, but also Dow Jones, S&P, Russell, everything is in the green. Can you just tell us your, your, your broad take on the Fed? And then from there, we move into uh, what does it mean for uh, our listeners' portfolio and investment decisions going forward? Yeah, so, so I think if you're playing the game sort of at a, at, a, at, a, at a lower level, you know, CFA level one game, this was a very hawkish meeting in terms of, you know, putting out more dots in the dot plot. And it was, in, in fact, the composition of which was actually even ha- more hawkish than the actual uh, updated projections in terms of three, three hikes next year, three hikes in the following year. Uh, but if you're playing the game from a CFA level three, or I don't know what's what's higher than that these days, uh, I have to go back to school. But th- what really got the markets moving, particularly equity and risk markets to the upside, was that uh, someone asked them a question about you know sort of like you know financial stability risk, and are you concerned at all that you know you guys are sort of moving towards um, you know accelerated tapering? What's, the, what's what what happens with respect to monetary policy in terms of its long and variable lags on the economy? And Jibao effectively said, you know, what markets actually really wanted to hear, which is like, hey, we're not on this preset course to tighten policy. If we see a, an adverse response from financial markets, we're well aware in terms of the impact that ultimately could have on the economy on a short lag, on a lag that's much shorter than traditional monetary policy works. So he effectively said, we're not on this preset path. Don't have to worry about it. If we see things slowing down, the economy will react and pivot back dovishly. And that was obviously very, very favorable for markets. Yeah, a great summary. He also said, by the way, that he sees rapid progress towards maximum employment. He yeah. gave some projections out where he talked about real GDP being 4% next year on a year-on-year basis in America 2022, topped up by CPI projections to 26 2.7%, which makes for a nominal growth next year of 6 to 7%, which still yeah. is pretty robust. So, um, what do you think of his take on maximum employment and how that you know, how that, does that interact with the, the inflation mandate? Because he, he also sounded relatively concerned about inflationary pressures. How is he going to, you know, maneuver around the two? Yeah, it's, it's, I don't think there's much wiggle room at all, quite frankly. I don't think markets really believe there's a lot of wiggle room. Otherwise, we, sit to see, we would not have seen a lot of the pain we've seen in a lot of risk assets leading up into this event. Um, you know, so going back to this maximum employment uh, discussion, the November jobs report was unequivocally hawkish. Obviously, the headline came in soft, but when you take one step past the onion peel, 
and kind of get in there and say, hey, look at all these sort of maximum inclusive mandate things that they've given us to look at over the last 12 to 18 months. And they all made substantial progress. You know, you look at it from an ethnic perspective, a Hispanic unemployment rate dropped 70 basis points month over month. The black unemployment rate dropped 120 basis points month over month. High school dropout employment, you know, if you look at it from an educational uh, attainment perspective, high school dropout unemployment rate dropped 170 basis points month over month. So you're talking about the communities of people in this country that have historically been marginalized from the perspective of the labor market, and more importantly, the perspective of monetary policy moving too quickly to allow these folks to come back to work or find find different jobs. And that we saw a very unequivocally, very positive uh, jobs report in that regard. So I think that's got them, uh, I wouldn't say concern, but it gave them the real big thumbs up in terms of being able to kind of you know outline this real hawkish policy pivot. Yeah. And what about this? Uh, you know, uh, discussion about long, uh, the, the labor force participation rate. They they mention it multiple times. And the way I look at it is basically cyclically speaking, the labor market is extremely hot in, you know, however you look at it, U6, broader definition of unemployment rate, quit rates, um, however sort of measure, also the ones you mentioned, it seems to be cyclically very hot and getting hotter as we speak. But yeah. what about the structural pressures that also Powell discussed, the ones that are pushing everything to the downside long term and are keeping participation rate low? Do you think they're going to you know, be uh, cognizant about that and consider also that as part of their labor market assessment? Or they're simply going to focus on the cyclicality of these massive improvements in, in, in cyclical labor market and inflationary pressures they face, and therefore they're just going to have to hit the gas and taper faster as they announce, even faster, or hike even in a more aggressive way. I mean, which which of the two stances are they going to take ultimately? Yeah, it's. I, I think they bought themselves enough time to allow for another upside inflation surprise. You know, over the next couple of months. So it's unlikely that they have to accelerate taper fare. I mean, they're already going to be finished in March. So I mean, it's not very far away. And so you know, it sort of seems as if. You know, there, on one hand, we realize when you go back to your point on cyclical, kind of the, the weakness in the labor market cyclically, it's because the employment to population ratio is down. It's 180 basis points from where it was, where it ended in 2019. The prime labor force working age, uh, labor force participation rate down 110 basis points from where it ended in 2019. And then you have the female labor force participation rate down another 150 basis points. And so the real question as it relates to wage pressures is, is that cyclical or structural? And quite frankly, no one knows. I mean, it's impossible to know. There's so many different factors driving it, and it'd be impossible to create a model on this until after the fact, right? We don't have enough data to determine what's actually the, the driving forces behind what, why would those labor force rates are so low, given all of the demand in the economy. We have an economy growing 10% on a nominal basis. We should be sucking people with all-time high job openings, so we should be sucking people back into the labor market hand over fist. So the reality is there's a lot of things holding back that those those rates. And the reason I bring that up is because the one thing the Fed sort of said that's not currently in our forecast that could actually cause us to move the needle today was wages. He effectively said, hey, look, you know, we, we understand wages are a little high and you got the quits rate really high, but you know, we don't really see, you know, kind of wages really filtering into inflation at the current juncture. Well, they very much could, given the current hot state of the labor market in terms of demand for labor with a reduced supply. Yeah. So let's try to move a little bit towards portfolio asset allocation and what does this mean effectively for our listeners. So we have a Fed that is looking at a pretty hot labor market, a cyclical recovery. They decided to accelerate the tapering plan, which in their words, 
buys them optionality on what to do in terms of monetary policy and how to hike and when to hike and you know how to face this hiking cycle. Um, what does this mean for investors when it comes to different asset classes? So. Uh, what are they looking at here? Bonds, uh, gold, equities, crypto, which sectors in the equity market uh, should be preferred at this stage? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. You're a great question. So uh, I have a couple of charts for the viewers today. Um, so the first chart, uh, slide five in our, in our uh, sort of in our you know, monthly macro scattering report, it shows our US grid model. And so for most of you viewers watching me know that uh, both, both you and I, <laughs> Think about the world from a regime segmentation, a quadrant-based regime segmentation approach. Uh, we use growth and inflation as our primary variables there. And as you can see, the modal outcome, as denoted by the first row in that chart, is transitioning from a sea of eyes to a sea of blues. And so what we're saying here is we're effectively going from stagflation to a situation where inflation, or de infl inflation and growth will be decelerating simultaneously, albeit off very high levels. We're talking about you know, 30-year highs in growth and inflation. So these are, you know, some some really important statistics to be aware of. The reason I bring that up, you know, and sort of the other chart we have, uh, we're showing is the the full table. The full table shows the entire world's uh, sort of transitioning from a very similar state where we are in now to a to a situation where both growth and inflation are decelerating simultaneously, and this will be persistent throughout most of next year. Again, the reason I bring this up is because that has a very different asset allocation set, set of asset allocation recommendations than the ones we've just exited for the past, I don't know, 18 to 20 months. Investors are very overweight, high beta risk assets relative to a lot of their strategic objectives. We can see this in asset allocation data. We can see this in survey data. We can see this in where people are concerned in terms of market overvaluations. We can see it in valuations themselves. And so the reason, reason I bring that up is because you might, I think the Fed did buy investors another, I don't know, couple of months of price appreciation and risk asset terms. You know, maybe we get the market up higher through February or March at the latest. But you're starting to get to the place in, in that cycle where a lot of investors have to rotate out of things that they probably shouldn't be long in the context of, you know, world, both the US and global economy that are persistently decelerating on growth and inflation terms. And so they're not long enough of high beta assets. They're not long enough of bonds in that in that environment. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So we're basically, we agree on where do we stand in the cycle. What I would like to stress for our audience is that Darius said something very relevant when it comes to the impulse of growth and inflationary pressures. So despite the direction of travel might still be positive, we have tailwind from a healing labor market. Uh, we have the tailwinds we discussed before when it comes to real economy next year. The impulse of growth is decelerating. The impulse of inflationary pressures is likely to decelerate. And in it already is. Sorry? It already is. <laughs> yes, of course. And in this environment, once the monetary policy starts to become a little, a little tighter, then also your asset allocation has to be changed accordingly. So um, you talked about high beta uh, exposure and low beta uh, exposure in equity markets. So uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So how would you try to steer your portfolio? Uh, what, what can you suggest uh, from an equity sector allocation when it comes to investment decisions? Yeah, so it's it's uh, so what I, I always say this, you know, when you're trying to risk manage a growth slowdown 
and an inflation slowdown at the same time. It becomes less about companies or industries or sectors and more about the style factors themselves. However, when you take the, the you rip the style factors apart, you find that a lot of healthcare companies, a lot of real estate companies, particularly the towers and the storage providers, uh, a lot of consumer staples companies, you know, those types of companies and obviously utilities, those types of companies tend to find themselves in the low beta aspects of of, of invest or you know those types of indices or ETFs, um, you know there's you know you can make the case that we learned a lot um, in this pandemic, particularly in March of, of 2020, when a lot of you know sort of the mega cap tech uh, names really outperformed and performed as if they were low beta securities. That was a meaningful transition, in my opinion, in terms of the market response to those types of events. Historically, those types of uh, sectors or those types of names have really um, kind of traded down um, in line or worse than the market. And so I think you you kind of run out from an equity allocation standpoint. You very quickly run out of things to buy. You're talking about low beta, and it's definitely not the stuff a lot of investors have been sort of pitched all year about. You know, secular inflation, secular inflation, persistent inflation, transitory, stupid. And guess what? All those things are right on a longer term time horizon. But throughout the year of 2022, it's very unlikely that you're going to make money, and certainly not outperform being long of those types of exposure. Yes, and um, I would like also to point our audience to the fact that uh, there has been a pretty good interview released on Real Vision, I think just today or maybe yesterday, between uh, Rick Creel, who's the CEO of Sprott US Holdings, and Dan Ferris, who's the, um, uh, who works for Stansberry Research, where they talk about uh, you know boring investing. So those stocks you just talked about, the low beta and the high beta, and they compare the two, and they deep dive into value investing. and what actually looks good today or doesn't look good today uh, in a portfolio. Mm -hmm. If you look at the word boring and you think about the antithesis of boring, it's probably terror. Uh, and I think it's important for the people that are listening to this broadcast to understand the basis of value investing is I would describe as a uh, relief from terror. Uh, and in that circumstance, I consider boring to be high praise indeed. Do you have any comment on that? Could not agree more. Bring on the boredom. Bring on the board. All I want to do is make money over time and compound and and buy assets with a margin of safety. You know, I, I absolutely do not want excitement. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be losing sleep over my investment portfolio. I mean, in, in a way. I guess this is our orientation as value investors, but in a way, the idea of losing sleep over your investment portfolio is—it's it, it, crazy to me. Why? Why would you ever do it? I don't know. So, welcome back, guys, to uh, the daily briefing with Darius and Alf. Uh, we were covering uh, equity sectors, and you know the the perspective that Darius has on on equity allocation in your portfolio. There are also other asset classes out there. So, I um, would like to ask Darius what's his take and what's the you know the Fed the Fed stance does to other asset classes like Bitcoin or gold. Do you have a do you have a take or altcoins or you know crypto and and gold? Do you have a take on that? Yeah, no, I think you could put, certainly the crypto is one of the highest beta asset classes in the world, if not the highest beta asset class in the world. So I would definitely put it in that box. That doesn't mean you need to go run out and sell all your crypto today. We recently sold our crypto exposure um, and, and took it down. I think the Fed opened a window today for, or for risk assets to trade well, at least over the next couple of months into the end of QE, because again, that, that, that process of tightening monetary policy is not going to be as preset as we initially thought it was. 
you know, coming from 7% thereabouts inflation, 4 or 5% core PC inflation, it feels like it should be, you know, pretty uh, set straightforward, but he cracked the window for, for the bulls to remain uh, pretty, pretty ardent there. Beyond that, it's going to be very hard to make money, in our opinion, in crypto. Because again, the rea- the reality is investors are overweight these exposures relative to where the cycle's taken them, and more importantly, where their strategic objectives are. Once they start losing money in these exposures, you know, obviously we've seen a preview of that in recent weeks. The reality is that re- what we've seen in recent weeks could be five, six, seven, eight, nine months of next year. And so that is the real risk. And once people start to see those trending price declines, see that technical damage, you're going to start to see people kind of rush for the exits. And there is just simply not enough liquidity in a lot of these markets for people to get out safely. So people on the exchange have come up with a couple of very interesting questions, Darius, that I want to ask you, but also ask myself, because a couple actually were including both of us in the questions. And well, basically, the gist of it is, Darius, I know that ALF compares today to summer of 2018, where stocks did still relatively okay until October. But Darius, yourself, you say that we are now closer to Q4 2018, where stocks suffered. So do you think the Fed decision today changes any of that? Do you think we are in summer 18 or in Q4 18? And how do you guys reconcile your, your, your quadrants view, basically? So you go first, Darius. Yeah, so I, I would uh, correct the, the premise of the question. In terms of Q418 would very much have been categorized as deflation in our framework. That's for both growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously. We are not there yet. Uh, we have inflation as the modal outcome through the month of January. Um, so uh, that's where growth's decelerating and inflation's accelerating. Uh, again, where we're looking at composite leading indicators for, for, for growth. It's very likely that if we're going to see a Q418 type event, it commences sometime in March, in the March through May time period. And the reason I say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being uh, expressly specific about that, probably more specific than I, I'm going to regret later, but that's when the growth slowdown, and at least according to our models, should start to really materially accelerate to the downside. And historically speaking, whenever you're in sort of inflation or deflation, one of those two regimes, you tend not to get negative absolute performance and risk assets until growth is accelerating materially to the downside or inflation, and very rarely does inflation accelerate materially to the downside if growth's not also slowing. Yes. So, um, in my last piece at the Macro Compass, which is my newsletter, I pointed out as we are in summer 2018, that's that's the, the jargon that I use to express the fact that we are not yet in the Q418 period because I saw two main differences. The first of it is that despite the impulse of growth and inflation slowing down, if you look at it from an absolute perspective, it, we're still looking at a relatively healthy quarter, maybe. I cannot quantify it's a quarter, three months or five, four months or five months, but you know, we, we, we will have a relatively healthy nominal growth going forward for the next foreseeable future. That's quite a difference compared to the fact that the impulse of growth and inflation in Q418 was slowing down pretty aggressively, pretty markedly. So from that perspective, we are not there yet. My credit impulse shows we have decelerated and we are decelerating, but we are not yet into the critical phase. But most importantly, the main difference is that real interest rates and financing financial condition are much, much easier and you know below equilibrium levels. While in 2018, the Federal Reserve was you know, making a pretty strong effort to bring these real rates higher and also to communicate that they will be on autopilot and that they were far from neutral rate, which yeah. indicated to, to people and to investors that there was way to go. If you look at the long-term dot today on the dot plot, it's stuck at 2.5%. It hasn't moved. There are only two 
people in the committee that think it might be 3%. Nobody's dreaming of increasing the long-term dot because nobody, even within the Fed, even the most hawkish members, they don't believe that equilibrium rates that the economy can hold are much higher or heading higher. That's a material difference between today's monetary policy setting and Q4 2018, where we were talking about autopilot, tapering, uh, quantitative tightening, uh, raising rates, uh, neutral rates for 4%, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's quite different. I think that is very different. You're, you, you're spot on in terms of that analysis, that, that juxtaposition. And the reason I think you're increasingly spot on is the fact that, look, the markets have figured out because of 2018 that we can't hold higher equilibrium rates. The euro dollar curve is basically like 175. You know, OIS is somewhere around there too. And so the, I think the market is the market today called the Fed's bluff and said if things get worse, really bad. And I guess the market is effectively saying down five, six, seven percent. The S and P is bad enough for them to pull an about face on 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 tapering and ultimately tightening monetary policy. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think they're going to have to deal with some very hawkish inflation readings, not directionally. We do believe inflation peaked in November, um, at least on headline CPI. We think uh, uh, core PC could be December or, P or, or November or December. Um, still, uh, the jury's still out on that. But the reality is, as they're getting these data points into you know, kind of the inevitable you know, sharper deceleration, that, in my opinion, I think it's, could, could be some issues because they might actually have to step forward in terms of their plans to tighten monetary policy at just precisely the wrong time. Darius, and when we look a little bit outside the US and we try to zoom out a bit and we look at you know, um, European equities or emerging market equities, emerging market effects, if you look at other commodities, uh, what is your view on, on these asset classes outside the US in your asset allocation? Yeah, absolutely. Can I pause that for a second and go back to this 2018 things? I think there's, sure. there's actually two things that I, I, I'd love to your opinion on. Yeah, one thing I think is different than 2018 that could be, or actually both of these are technically probably worse, is liquidity. It's very clear that liquidity and functioning in markets is worse now. It's bad in the treasury market, it's bad in the credit market, and I think we're seeing previews of it in the cryptocurrency space, and ultimately, we obviously saw it in the collapse in growth and high beta this week in the equity space. There's too many people on one side of the bid and not enough people on the on the on the offer. Or sorry, it's the other way around. <laughs> too many people on the offer when it's time to sell and not enough people on the bid. So that liquidity uh, dynamic, in my opinion, is much worse in 2018 today as a function of just one-way markets for you know 18 months. And then number two, we don't know where the growth, the economy's. We know where the economy has to slow to. Economists, if you look at Bloomberg consensus, if you look at the Federal Reserve, they have this very linear. You know, sort of, you know, gradual just decay process baked into the cake. You know, we're going to go from five percent year-over-year real GDP gradually to two and a quarter by the end of next twenty twenty-three. What if that process is from five to four to two, back to you know trend growth? And you know, and that to me is it's not even a what if. It's I'm starting to think that seems like a more reasonable probability if we don't see. The additional fiscal uh, stimulus jammed into the cake into the cake in fiscal 22, which, in my opinion, based on you know the reading the tea leaves in DC, may not be may, may not be the case. The fiscal drag is going to be something really material to deal with next year. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, 
your question on liquidity is, is paramount important. Um, I mean, I used to run a large book until a few weeks ago. And I mean, I had been experiencing over the years quite a change in uh, the warehousing capacity of market makers out yeah. there. So regulation has made balance sheet uh, much more expensive to own for dealers. Um, in general, it's for them, uh, you know, much more complicated to warehouse risk exactly at the moment when you need liquidity to be provided to the market. That's the result of both regulation, incentive schemes when it, when it comes to bonuses being different from the years before, and also it's, it's periods of the year. I mean, we're talking December where the trader who has made 20 bucks and is going to be paid the percentage payout of, of that of that PL. Yes, he wants to secure that his bonus of 2021 is going to be paid out. He's not going to take additional risks in dumping liquidity markets to provide liquidity to some real money investor. So yeah. this, this seasonality in liquidity providing is also pretty important, but nevertheless, the structural ability of market making guys to take risks has been impaired by regulation over the years. That's something that it's really important. People uh, underestimate the impact of regulation in markets. It's it's really important, and it's a good question. And and the second one, when it comes to gapping uh, GDP growth, basically, so uh, people tend to focus uh, their attention and their animal spirits on fiscal impulses, right? Which I call um, credit sugar rushes. So you get a sugar rush, and then you feel high, and then you have to go out. You get some money in your bank account in the form of you know a fiscal check or something that reached your bank account or tax breaks, and then you feel compelled to spend this additional dry powder that you have, your animal spirits run high, but hey, the impulse for, for every fiscal impulse, there is a fiscal cliff or a fiscal drug, and that's yeah. what inevitably hits every single time. And nevertheless, people are focused a lot on the animal spirits and much less on what comes after, which will inevitably be there. And as you correctly say, it's all about the impulse. So it's all about the, the the second derivative of this of this fiscal impulse. So in 2022, what is this he gonna gonna be able to do? We don't know yet. Um, so yeah. Well, we know what they've done thus far. It's 6.6 .6 trillion dollars since the pandemic began. It's huge. If that number goes to one trillion, that's the biggest fiscal fiscal cliff in the history of the, not the U.S. economy, the biggest fiscal cliff in the history of the world economy. And so for, I just I really struggle. And then I'm putting this out there to open question. Everyone, please tweet at me your thoughts on this. How do we grow, I don't know, 150, 175 basis points above potential GDP in a year where we have the our biggest fiscal cliff ever? Like what's causing that not only us to grow, but us to grow hot faster than potential GDP? And I, I don't I don't get it. I don't get it either, to be honest. We have okay, that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> I mean, we have tailwinds from a healing labor market. That's something to be factored in. We have a pretty easy monetary policy stance compared to where equilibrium real interest rates are. That's also true. We are slowly adjusting this monetary policy to a, a more equilibrium level, let's say. And we have a pretty large fiscal drag that impacts the tailwind, you know, and offsets the tailwind coming from the labor market. Overall, the picture doesn't seem rosy to me, or especially, you know, prone to this crack up boom in nominal growth economy in 2022, for which you have to belong uh, industrial commodities, you have to belong the most high beta stuff out there, because that's where you're going to make money in 2022. I, I tend to think that's not the case. The crack up boom ended for most people in June, if they're being honest about their returns. <laughs> and, and, and quite frankly, that's right around the peak of the growth cycle. If you look at the composite leading index time series for most economies.
right? Yeah. I mean, so this the the market is trading this very. The market is responding to these growth and inflation impulse as well. I think there's you can get sort of whipped around in a one or two month time period. But if you're taking the three, six, four month view, you need to be looking at this next couple of months as an opportunity to book gains in high beta assets. Because when you actually need to book gains in high beta assets, there will be no one on the bid for your offers. And they'll go down 10, 15, 20%. We've seen a preview of it the last couple of weeks. This is, and this is before growth really starts to materially slow. This is before any actual tightening of monetary policy. This is before the fiscal the record fiscal cliff kicks in. And so, uh, and one last thing on that that fiscal cliff, uh, the number one pushback I get from investors, you know, in meetings on you know, when I bring this sort of discussion up to the forefront, they say, well, the consumer balance sheet is extremely healthy, which obviously is, is very uh, very true on an aggregated basis. But then, when you sort of disaggregate it, you see that sixty five percent of the wealth is concentrated in the top ten percent of consumers. Well, the top ten percent of consumers only account for about twenty five percent of consumption. So who? So we're, how do we plug the seventy five percent hole? And oh, by the way, the bottom fifty percent of households by household net worth they account for about two percent of the wealth. And I'm guessing that two percent of the wealth is gone because of the seven percent inflation that they're eating right now. And yes. so I just I, I really struggle with you know a lot of the the assumptions that are being made to keep investors levered long high beta risk assets. And again, they may work for the next couple of months because I think the Fed created a window for that to, that to occur. But there's going to be a lot of pain next year if people don't get get out of these use these opportunities to get out. As you talk about booking gains, we have one last interesting question from um, a Real Vision member that asks about the role of cash in your portfolio. As you book gains, and it looks to be very difficult to allocate long exposures into next year, you have to be much more selective. Then cash might also be an alternative. So how do you look at that in your portfolio? Yeah, no, totally. Uh, cash is. I, I tend to think of cash as a residual, and it's, you know, it's it almost is like a it's a it's a risk management tool, not on purpose, but if you can't find anything to buy, that's the market sending you a signal. And so obviously our process is driven by the regime segmentation framework uh, that we outlined earlier. And the, the secondary component of our process is what are the markets telling us, both from a market regime now casting perspective, but also from the, the perspective of the security itself. You know, what's the volatility just a momentum signal? What, what are the problem? Where is it in the context of its problem range? Should I be buying it today? Should I be buying it in the near term? So all those things factor these get factored in, and if I can't find something to buy in a long only portfolio, that's the market telling me, "Hey, look, this is probably not a good time to be going on to buying things." Yes. So as I always say, just uh, deal with the hand you've been dealt with, and not with the one you you you'd wish you'd be handling at this moment. I mean, if the market is giving you A, you trade A, or you try to anyway. You should have a game plan for every market environment you find yourself in, rather than what you wish the market environment would be uh, according to your own perspective, right? So um, we have one last one I would like to ask you, which is again on on digital assets uh, from the audience. And they basically ask if digital assets in 2022 can decouple from the broader market performance or if the correlation with the S&P we've been seeing of late can effectively decouple back to pretty low levels, so that digital assets can behave as a separate asset class in 2022. Yeah, no, anything is possible. So any sort of can question with respect to financial markets or the future, the answer is yeah, sure, it can possible. The 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 real question that investors, professional investors, and people who are trying to make money are trying to figure out is this probable? And I would pose the the question back to the user, and or I'd answer the question with the user is if the bull case for digital assets is institutional adoption, and the people who adopt these assets 
have to put them into an institutional portfolio that have other assets that they're co they're, co you know, they're correlating with and and have other volatilities and betas that need to sort of all mesh together to form a, a reasonable portfolio allocation. How is it possible that crypto can work and decouple at the same time? You know, you need these people to buy crypto. Otherwise, all the evangelicals on crypto have already bought it. You need more people to come into the asset class. And the more people that come in the asset class, the more likely it is to behave like, uh, you know, traditional equity beta, traditional commodity beta. Yes, indeed. Great summary. Great having you, Darius. Likewise, uh, man. Look forward to more of these. Yes, I hope the, uh, the audience has enjoyed this very nice interview. Thanks, everybody, for watching really, uh, Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tomorrow, by the way, let's tune back in because Maggie will be hosting Liz Young, head of investments at Sophie, Sophie, actually, I should say. She's and, good, uh, Excellent. Yes, indeed. And also check out Western Nakamura's videos because he's going to be releasing videos on the Evergrande story in the Chinese real estate sector, which has been the focus of a lot of people up until a month ago. And the story is probably not going away very soon. It's, it's in the background, but Weston is going to shed some light on that. So, uh, you know, just uh, make sure you tune in for Weston's video. And if you want to, you know, interact with us, just drop questions on the exchange and Real Vision. We're always happy to tune in and answer your questions. Thanks again, Darius. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Cheers. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.